Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. We begin, as ever, with our friends, the sailors on the whale ship, the Swan of Hull, trapped in the ice off the west coast of Greenland in the spring of 1837. These readings come from a transcription of the logbook held in the archives of the Caird Library in the National Maritime Museum in London. The transcription has been made especially for this podcast. You are the first people ever to hear these words read aloud. This podcast episode is itself a little piece of maritime history. Spring has arrived, but the conditions are becoming as desperate as they ever have been. The ship is now free of the ice, but drifting. And they can see the end of their rations. They have four weeks before the rations run out, though many may die before then. They decide to make a break, to try and reach land. Thursday, 29th of April. Light variable winds with fine clear weather, the ship having drifted north since yesterday several miles. One whole cask full of bread is now left, 27 hands having been served out of the other so that in four weeks' time it will be impossible to stay by the ship, and abandon her we must, for there is not the least hope of being liberated, being frozen in the very centre of an immense field of ice. A reduction in our allowance of provision would be attended with serious result, four of our crew being laid in the last stage of scurvy, while the majority of the remaining are suffering from the same disease. At noon the following men came forward, and offered for the safety of the ship to launch a boat astern, and attempt to reach the Danish settlement of New Island Point, or lively is the opportunity offered. A 250 gallon shake, number 67, cut up today. Latitude by observation 70 degrees, 30 north. Thermometer 26 degrees. Saturday the 1st of April. Light winds with fine clear weather. At 5am the following men left the ship with a whaleboat. Seven pounds of bread each, two pieces of beef, one pork and one cheese and other necessaries accompanied by two watches who assisted them in launching as far as possible, being prevented from proceeding further by lanes of water and bare ice. David Hoddett, William Harper, William Barrow, Alexander Anderson, James Jameson belong to the Margaret of London, and the following part of our crew. Daniel Knight, Thomas Kelly, William Walker, Robert Darby, 
R. Collins, John Nuttall, Bruce Nelson, Magnus Harrison, John Brown. Fine clear weather to the end of the day with a light airy wind from the north. At 7pm our travellers were just perceptible from the masthead, apparently making great progress. Thermometer standing at 14 degrees. Latitude 70 degrees by 30 north. This week I am talking with the excellent Charlie Connolly. We're very lucky here because Charlie is a best-selling writer and an award-winning broadcaster. You may know him from his excellent book, Attention All Shipping, A Journey Around the Shipping Forecast. Now, I absolutely promise you that we will get him back on in the future to talk about the fascinating history of the shipping forecast. But for now, we're going to be talking about the English Channel. Is it a bulwark against invasion, a conduit for exchange, a challenge to be conquered? Well, of course, it's all those things and more. The English Channel is particularly fascinating because it's many different things to many different people. And in our new age of Brexit and being separated now from Europe, it's as important as it ever has been. It's still the busiest shipping lane in the world and hosts more than 30 million passenger crossings each year. Anyway, to find out more, here is the fabulously entertaining Charlie Connolly. Charlie, thanks so much for talking to me today. Oh, it's a pleasure, Sam. Thanks for having me. So why... A very broad question here. Why the maritime world as a topic for your books? What got you into writing about the sea? Um, well, I've, I've got this kind of lengthy maritime heritage, some of which isn't very impressive uh, in, in the family, uh, from, of, well, going back to sort of shipwrights and dockers mainly, uh, shipwrights in Rotherhithe and on the Sussex coast in Itchener. Uh, and my great grandparents had a ship's laundry in the docks in London in Silvertown and my great-grandfather made this accidental voyage by taking the laundry back onto a ship during the First World War in 1917, uh, staying for a drink with the sailors, uh, got drunk and the ship sailed with him on it and he was gone for eight months. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, there's, uh, and I've also recently discovered a, a five times great-grandfather who was a, a captain of, a, of whaling ships in the South Seas. So he's a, a little bit more distinguished on the, on the maritime front than my great-grandfather. But yeah, I've got this kind of, I'm quite proud of this uh, mixed maritime heritage and I've always had this fascination with the sea as a, as a result and luckily it's turned into a, a few books. Do you think it is actually as a result of your heritage? Um, it could be I mean I grew up with the stories like those of my great-grandfather but I've only uh, discovered that it went way back I mean I've gone all the way back to a, uh, a captain in the East India Company in the late 17th century called Captain William Heath um, is the furthest one of maritime ancestor back that I've found. And uh, one of the few written records I found of him said um, that the ship was lost at Blackwall due to the pride and obstinacy of Captain Heath. And I thought, yep, yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's related to me. <laughs> so and I, I asked because uh, I come from a naval family. My grandfather was in the Navy. His father was in the Navy. We specced even further back they were. Uh, and I've also um, recently discovered that the Cutty Sark was made by a, a guy called uh, Jock or Jack Willis, uh, known as White Hat Willis because he wore a yeah. white top hat, which I think is properly cool. Yeah. Anyway, I, I'm um, I'm just n naturally been interested in the sea, and I'm absolutely convinced that I have um, it is in my blood. 
Mm. I don't even know what that means. I'm a historian. It's the kind of thing historians shouldn't actually say. But yeah. I'm in the, I really believe it's true. So it's interesting that you said the same thing. It is, I, mean, I love the Cutty Sark as well. I used to live about five minutes' walk from it. And uh, I used to spend ages on the Cutty Sark. So I know White Hat Willis. And, and you're related to White Hat Willis. That's fantastic. Well, no, I'd, I'd like to think All I am. Right. I'm going to carry, I'm going to try and prove it. If there are any um, researchers out there, maritime researchers who are also genealogists, can you please, I'll pay you to prove <laughs> <laughs> that I'm related to White Hat Willis. What's cool about him is that his, um, he had a family motto, which is where there's a will is a way, which is very well known. Oh, um, yeah. But it's written as in where's there's a Willis away. Excellent. So, um, yeah, I got uh, I, 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 a little photo of it. My dad's got it on his desk. Oh, fantastic. Uh, which, is, which is kind of cool. Anyway, um, so now you've been uh, writing about the English Channel. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's one, one serious topic. Uh, very, very <laughs> timely um, wh- wh- why why did you suddenly was it did you decide before this whole Brexit shenanigans you were going to write about the channel or has it been lurking for a while? Uh, it wasn't connected directly. I must admit. I mean, obviously that brought Brexit brought the channel into a much sharper focus. Uh, but I moved to uh, a town called Deal on the coast of Kent. About well, it was in 2016 that I moved here, um, and I actually live right on the channel. I mean. The, the beach is literally outside the house here, so I, I can see the horizon when I look out the window. And so I, I, I was going down to the channel every day. I started swimming in the channel every day, and it just kind of uh, the fascination grew on me. Especially when, in some mornings when it's clear, you can go down to the to the beach and you can see France on the other side. Uh, it's that close. I mean, there's 21 miles between Dover and Calais. It's a little bit further to deal. We're about 10 miles up the coast from Dover and in in the evenings on clear evenings you can see the the different orange glows in the sky which are the street lights of um, Calais, um, Dunkirk and Graveling so I've really got this sense of how narrow the channel is and obviously it's got this this long and significant history and symbolism as well so it was like a combination of factors I mean Brexit wasn't a direct influence on me writing the book obviously it's, it's always going to be bubbling away in the background now but uh, but no, it was a general historical fascination, plus my new proximity to the channel, that uh, drew me to write about it. Yeah, I mean, I think you mentioned the symbolism of it there. It's fascinating, and it's something that I've come across Ooh, quite a lot frozen. in my work and also uh, my filming. I've been filmed on boats bobbing around by the White Cliffs so often because it's such a distinctive <laughs> image. Uh, TV documentary makers want to have it behind presenters all the time. And it's a symbol as for people arriving, say, in the Windrush generation from abroad, they see the White Cliffs of Dover, uh, but also for people, you know, coming home. There's, you know, there's both a, 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 new, a, new, a new thing to see and a, and a kind of well-known thing to see there, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's been in the news recently that the cliffs are kind of collapsing as well, so they, <laughs> you can probably read some kind of symbolism into that. But yeah, I mean, I mean this is the, the busiest waterway in the world, as far as, far as I know. I can't think of a, of a busier one, and it always has been. And, and when you think of all the great symbolic uh, voyages that have, have gone along the channel, even, even when they're on their way somewhere else, from from you know when when the white ship went down in eleven twenty right up to you know, Shackleton and his crew and Nelson obviously, uh, and most of those great voyages, Drake, uh, the Armada, everything, they, they all seem to come back to the channel, uh, and we do have this symbolism in this country uh, in, in, involved with the White Cliffs. And yeah, I mean, I come back from France on the ferry and, and that first glimpse of the White Cliffs is, is, you know, you think, oh, great, nearly home. Almost literally, now I live very close to, to Dover as well. Uh, and there's just a big sort of weight of history there. I mean, it's always been... I prefer to see the channel as a conduit rather than a moat and it's a connector and I think 
it's only in the recent couple of centuries that we've, we've um, kind of this you know, that, that famous mythical newspaper headline of fog in channel continent cut off i mean it wasn't a real headline but you know <laughs> it's kind of plausible when you think about it as a, as a headline in some of the papers um and but it's only in the last couple of centuries really that it's been seen more as a, as a moat than a, than a than a connection i mean as far back as the sixth century there was st gilda wrote something about um that britain was protected on three sides by the sea but uh, on the, the southern side is where the ships go to and from Gaul. So that wasn't seen as a kind of protective thing then. But uh, it, it, it has become, I mean, the White Cliffs especially as, as a symbol are you know, visually striking. You can almost hear Vera Lynn singing whenever you, you, you think about the White Cliffs. But um, sometimes when I, I look across from, from the beach here and I see France, especially in the evening when the sun's coming from the west, uh, you see that, that France has white cliffs as well, but they don't seem to attach the same symbolism to them. I've got a, a postcard over my desk of the white cliffs near Cap Grenet um, to remind me that it's not just the white cliffs of Dover, there's the white cliffs of France as well, because I prefer to think of it as a kind of... Uh, it was a big chalk ridge that fell apart 8,000 years ago and created the English Channel, so... it. The, the cliffs were actually part of a link between us and the rest of Europe, and I kind of I, I kind of like that thought that, that on the other side there's the the, the, the sheared off cliffs uh, in France as well as here. So yeah, it's easy to kind of um, forget that. I mean, if you imagine the Channel, it's a bit like a mirror, isn't it? You've got the white cliffs on both sides of the Channel, but then if you go the other end, um, you know, kind of opposite Cornwall down to Brittany, the coastlines there are the same as well, mm. um, and it's it's very much mirrored. It's mm. very much married, very, very similar indeed. I don't think people recognise that as much. Yeah, and then the Bretons and the Cornish, of course, they have their, their own languages. I think even the languages are fairly similar, aren't they? The, the Cornish yeah. language and the Breton language, there is, which is really fascinating. When you think how far apart they are compared to, to this end of the channel, I mean, this end of the channel, you can, I mean, obviously people can swim between England and France, uh, but that end of the channel, to still have that uh, that kind of distinct connection in terms of language, uh, I think is really fascinating. Yeah, it's also having a country having so many different types of coastline. I mean, if I went down to Deal, it is it is radically different to if I went down to Dartmouth, and it's exactly the same with the French. And part of of the maritime history of both countries was being able to cope with and harness the variety of of the coastlines um, that they've got to deal with. Mm, yeah, I mean, we're on a shingle beach here. We got. Margate's a sandy beach. Even even on that hyper local level, it's uh, it, it's 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 a coastline of varieties, as the brochures yeah, would say. True, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, I loved all the all of the the different stories in your book. I was particularly pleased to see a chapter on the wreck of the Amphitrite. And I say this because one of our earliest episodes of the Mariners Mirror podcast was a sneak preview of the new Turner exhibition at the Tate, mm. um, which included the uh, Turner's astonishing painting of a wreck, which we think is the Amphitrite. Um, so everyone listening. Do please, I urge you to go back through our catalogue and check out that episode. We essentially have a, a private tour with the curator of the Tate exploring Turner's brilliant maritime art. Um, but tell me, uh, tell me a little bit about about this wreck and why you chose to write about it. I just think it's one, it's an incredible tragedy. It's a horrendous tragedy on every level. Uh, the Amphitrite, which um, was eighteen thirty three. I mean, I mean, the Channel is. Uh, a, a tr- has got a tragic history, right? To as I mentioned earlier, the the, the white ship back in eleven twenty, um, the Penley lifeboat, uh, even right up to the footballer Emiliano Sala a couple of years ago, whose plane went down in the Channel. So, it is a a, a narrow seaway just packed with tragedy. But there was something about the Amphitrite that 
that really struck me because um, it was a uh, it was taking uh, transporting women prisoners to Australia in 1833, uh, and over a hundred of them drowned. Um, and only three crew members survived. I think they, they're not really certain exactly how many people were on, on the ship, but they reckon it was 130-ish, including the crew, and only three crew members survived. And I looked into some of the stories of some of the women convicts, and some of the stories are heartbreaking. Um, there was a woman called uh, Mary Brown who was 19 years old, and her husband had been transported to Australia, and so she deliberately stole some cloth from a shop in order that she might get convicted and transported and sent out to join him. Um, there was a woman called Maria Hoskins uh, who had, I think, it was kind of prearranged crime because she was determined to go to Australia. She, I think, from from what I can gather, but reading between the lines, making a few assumptions, she'd been very wronged by a man called whose name was Farmer because um, she stole a watch from her landlady and took it to the pawn shop. And the landlady had only been gone ten minutes. Uh, came back, oh, where's my watch? Oh, I've pawned it. Uh, I'm not telling you where it is. And the landlady calls a policeman. And the policeman, um, she said to the policeman, I am determined to be transported to Australia because I've got to get away from Mr. Farmer. So I think maybe the landlady and Maria Hoskins came to this arrangement. So, I mean, there were some hardened criminals on that ship as well. But a lot of the stories are, are really tragic. Um, I mean, women's position in society then was even worse than it is now. Uh, and some of them were really badly treated by, by men. Uh, and you know, they ended up, being transported for anything from seven years up to a lifetime but some of the stories were really kind of heartrending and what happened was the ship sailed from Woolwich um, and it got round to Dungeness and a storm uh, blew up and they kind of it was a fairly persistent storm and I think it was the 31st of August 1833 the ship ran aground off about three quarters of a mile off Boulogne and the captain thought he could ride it off on, on the next high tide. But the sea was so rough that all the people in Boulogne were lined up on the shore saying he's never going to get off that sandbank. It's, they've got to get off the ship. But he, he uh, Captain Hunter, and there was the ship's surgeon was a guy called James Forrester, who apparently treated Lord Byron as well in, in, in an earlier time. Uh, they were determined that these women weren't going to get off the ship. Um, I think there was talk that they, they were on a pound... A, pound a person bonus when they got to Australia for uh, everyone that arrived safely and there was also talk that the captain was going to be fined a thousand pounds for any prisoner that didn't that escaped so even though the ship was in grievous mortal danger they were determined that these women weren't going to be allowed off the ship so um, a boat went out and said we can take you off uh, the captain said, no, thank you, we're all right. And it was getting so obviously dangerous that a, a local man from Boulogne actually swam out to the ship and said, throw me a rope and I'll take you back to the shore and we can start getting you off. And they, some sailors threw him a rope and he started swimming back and this rope was yanked out of his hands because it's like, no one's getting off the ship. And predictably, the ship broke in half. All these women uh, were tossed into the sea uh, and the crew, and they nearly all drowned. So, but in fact, all the women did drown. There was only three crew members survived, and uh, the crew members that survived came back with some horrible stories about that the surgeon's wife was saying, I'm not getting in a boat with any of those women because uh, they had a lifeboat that would have held 60 people. So two runs in the lifeboat, everyone lives. Um, but they were just determined that this that these women weren't going to get on the boat. The, the, the surgeon's wife didn't want to mix with these terrible com convicts and uh, ended up creating this horrendous disaster and all these bodies started washing up on the shore um, and most of them you know completely unmarked uh, uh, they 
buried, I think there's 83 women are buried in a mass grave in what was called the English Cemetery in Boulogne. Uh, it's now called the Eastern Cemetery. And I went and visited the, the, the grave there um, when I went over to Boulogne and left some flowers. And I was thinking, I, I, I'm probably one of the only people that's ever been to visit them because they were all from poor families. Um, you wouldn't know exactly who's down there because none of the bodies could be identified. Most of them had their clothes removed by the sea when they were washed up so you couldn't really identify anyone and no one could have really afforded to go and visit them so you know, I felt really kind of inadequate leaving a bunch of chrysanthemums from Tesco's in Deal uh, on this his grave in Boulogne but there was something about that disaster that really got under my skin somehow that the, the just the sheer tragedy of it and and the, the little kind of poignant details of their their little boxes were washing up on the shore that contained the sewing kits that they were taking and, and the flat irons they were taking out that to to start this new life even as as, as convicts and it, just these little poignant touches that kind of bring home the the scale of a, a big tragedy like that so i mean i think the amphitrite is an awful tragedy and 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 no one really lived to be accountable for it either you know the captain drowned the surgeon drowned um so it's just one of those yeah. terrible tragedies that the channel throws up and sees all over the world throw up hey there it's michelle norris i'm host of a podcast called your mama's kitchen when i travel i'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when i'm not at home and one of the things i love to do when i am at home is entertain and airbnb allows me to do that when i was in california recently i rented a house that had a great kitchen and when we were sitting around the table we we're all thinking we're in someone else's house someone could be in all of our homes as well if you have a home but you're not always at home you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And it became so famous because I, I think it was it was avoidable, as, you know, so many of these, these stories which become real press sensations is is a the horror of it but you know be the fact that for, for whatever reason um whether it's uh navigational error or just people caught up in their own uh confusion of the social what what's what's required of their own behavior um i love the fact that you, you took flowers to the grave and uh, i'm trying to find ways that the listeners of the mariners mirror podcast can get involved in maritime history so I think it's a wonderful idea to go and take some flowers to the uh, gravesite of the Amphitrite. Do that. Send, some, send us some photos. You can find us on Instagram or find me on Twitter or wherever, and um, we'll share them. I think that's an absolutely lovely idea. It's an easy well grave done. to find as well. It's, it's quite close to the entrance, so you can't really miss it. It's a big obelisk. 
Okay, well, good, good, good. I'm going to, I'm going to go myself. Now there are all sorts of, of, of wonderful characters. It, it, it's like the English Channel for some reason attracts eccentrics. And I'm not quite <laughs> sure why why that is. Um, and maybe it's a little fair to say that these people in the past were actually eccentric, but they've certainly got some remarkable, remarkable characters, and remarkable stories. I love the the um, the way you wrote about Jean Bart. Tell us about him. Oh yeah, Jean, he was one of my favourite characters. In fact, I've got a little uh, snow globe that I bought in Dunkirk of Jean Bart's statue that I keep on my desk in front of me all the time. That's how much of a fan I am. Um, uh, Jean <laughs> Bart was a it's one of the great characters of the English Channel, and, and probably people on this side of the channel aren't as familiar as with him as uh, people in France would be. But where he's he's, he's quite a bit a popular character. Uh, he was a an incredible, daring, audacious, flamboyant uh, captain of military ships. Uh, he was born in Dunkirk in 1650, and he came from a line of of privateers and sea captains and his uncle uh, blew himself and his ship up in a war with the Dutch so the Dutch wouldn't get their hands on the ship so he had quite uh, a much more impressive maritime heritage than me that's for sure uh, and he went to sea at an early age Jean Bar when he was 17 he was part of the uh, the Dutch fleet that sailed up the Medway and captured the uh, naval flagship the Royal Charles and carried that off so he was part of that when he was just 17 um, but my favourite story of his was is 1688 when I think it was the there were so many wars going backwards and forwards back then. They were practically on a rotor. Was it the something about the War of the Kingdom of Augsburg? I can't remember what it is, 1688. But he was um, captain of a ship by then, and he was escorting some uh, Dutch merchant ships back towards Dunkirk, and they were attacked off the Isle of Wight by British ships, and Jean Bart was injured and captured, and he was sent to prison in Plymouth with um, another officer. And because he was such a great character, he spoke a bit of English as well. He kind of charmed the governor of the prison in Plymouth and persuaded him to let him and his mate um, have a room over a pub instead of the prison. Um, And they put bars over the window and guards outside. Uh, And so they were sitting in this pub, basically. Um, And then a relative of Jean Bart's from um, Ostend, a fisherman, happened to be in town, heard Jean Bart was in, in... in town uh, captured and went to visit him and in true kind of cartoon slapstick comedy style handed him a massive file um with which uh it, i don't think it was baked in a cake but uh but john bart managed to saw through the bars of the cage and obviously being in a pub the guards outside uh, were encouraged by their their prisoners to go and enjoy a few pints now and again so the guards then fell into a drunken stupor john bart and his mate climbed out the window um the relative from Ostend had got hold of a little fishing boat and off they went and they they, they sailed out into the channel. Um, it was a foggy night. Uh, there was a, 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 a government cutter tried to intercept them and said, uh, who are you? And Jean Bart said in his best Devon accent, uh, fisherman, and that was good <laughs> enough. And they, they spent two and a half days in the channel and ended up um, getting ashore at St. Marlow where everyone thought he was dead. Uh, and then resumed his career harassing shipping in the Channel um, and almost literally saved France from starvation in 1694 uh, when the French had arranged with the Norwegians to buy 120 ships full of grain because uh, they had two years of crop failures and, and you know, there was real hardship in, in, in France at that time. And set these 120 ships set off too early and were captured by the Dutch because Jean Bart was supposed to be escorting them back. But they set off too early, got captured by the Dutch. 
And so he sailed up to uh, an island off the Dutch coast where they were and made straight for the, the, the Dutch flagship um, and just battered the thing to pieces, rescued these 120 uh, grain ships, took them back to France. And, you know, starvation was averted for the nation. So he was kind of an incredible hero. Um, two years later, 1696, he was uh, involved with the Battle of Dog Dogger Bank, where he smashed... He was a, very, a specialist in smashing through blockades. And he smashed through the Dutch blockade... Um, at the Battle of Dogger Bank, rescued twelve hundred prisoners and took twenty five merchant ships captured, and so and and that was his last hurrah really in the in in the Channel. Um, and he's such a big name that uh, twenty seven vessels of the French Navy have have borne the name Jean Bart ever since. And the current one is a frigate, I think, that's been uh, commissioned since nineteen eighty five. So, not many people know him here, but I think he's a terrific character. And and the statue is very flamboyant as well. If you're in Dunkirk, this huge he's got this big floppy hat on with a big feather in it and thigh length boots and he's he's waving his sword around in the direction of the channel so he's yeah a terrific character he looks the business doesn't he i know i know that 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 um that statue very well <laughs> um it's such a flamboyant and interesting period uh just those of you who are listening if you don't know about the dutch raid on the medway uh, look it up that's a really impressive piece of of maritime and naval history and even better go to the medway and have a look at where it all happened you can do you can do that um lovely vantage points there um another another guy you write about jabez wolf is that how i pronounce how do i pronounce j a b e z habez i i presume it's jabez he's he's scottish so um it, it, i don't oh, think he, not spanish uh, no, I don't think it was a, Sp a Spanish... Although he was one of about 12 children, so maybe they were just running out of names by the time they got to him and, <laughs> and came up with this kind of Spanish one. But it was known as Jappy, was his nickname, which was uh, it's almost as weird as being called Jabez. But yeah, Jabez Wolf, another one um, uh, of my kind of channel heroes. He was the least successful channel channel swimmer in history. Uh, he was <laughs> What a claim. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he managed to make a career out of it, which was tremendous. Um, he, he was born in 1875. He made his first attempt in 1906. Uh, and he made 22 attempts to swim the channel um, and failed every time. Uh, but he was such a huge character. He was a huge man for a start. He had this huge barrel chest and a great big head it was like you felt that you know if every time he plunged into the channel streets in Calais and Dover were in danger of being flooded but he was <laughs> determined and, and and he knew how to work the show business side of it as well because at that in 1906 when he did his first attempt still only one person had ever succeeded in swimming the channel which was Captain Matthew Webb way back in 1875 no one else succeeded until 1911 when a guy called Tom Burgess did it as well so I mean that just kind of emphasizes what an achievement Matthew Webb pulled off uh, to do it so far ahead of everyone else but Jabez Wolf um, he his first attempt in 1906 he reckons he got a bit overconfident things were going too well and I don't know what it meant but he in his account of it he said I I, I, I spurted up joyfully uh, in the channel and and then he pulled the muscle whatever whatever spurting up was he pulled the muscle had to be pulled out and this set off this kind of legacy of unsuccessful channel swimming um, and and yeah, 22 attempts. He made his last attempt when he was 47 years old, and he failed for for a variety of reasons, some of which were pretty funny. Uh, and a lot of the time, it was just yeah, the, the weather was too rough. He was stung by jellyfish. Um, there was one occasion he was butted by a shark uh, and injured him, and he, and he said that that was very, very unsportsmanlike on the part of the shark, <laughs> was, was his verdict on that. Um, he reckoned at one point, he, one attempt was ruined when a submarine surfaced beneath him. 
<laughs> I'm not sure how true a lot of these were, but these were what he was claiming. Uh, but my favourite one, his most successful one, he got within 800 yards of the Calais coast. He'd been in the water about 20 hours, and then the tide turned and took him back out again. Um, so he was gutted about that one. Uh, but my favourite one was, he said it was in the summer of 1914, he said that the glass was up, so the temperature was good, the weather was good, the sea was calm, and he was feeling really good. Got about halfway across, the First World War broke out. <laughs> and they got word on the ship that the First World War had broken out, had to turn around and go back again. So he did have a lot of luck, but he, he knew how to spin a yarn as well. Um, he did, he did. It's like he was... Um... He had a very acute um, sense of what would make the best headline as an excuse oh, for not being able to swim the channel. Definitely. I mean, his first attempt was in 1906. In 1907, he starred in a film, which unfortunately has been lost by now, called The Channel Swimmer. I mean, at that point, he was no more of a channel swimmer than I was. You know, he'd swum in the channel. He hadn't swum across the channel successfully. Uh, so, yeah, he really knew how to milk the kind of celebrity side of it. And he did become a celebrity when he, he died in the, during the Second World War. I think it was 1943. There were obituaries in the, in the newspapers in America as well. Because he'd also doubled up after, uh, as, he, as he got older, he, he, he became a renowned swimming coach for channel swimmers. Because you know, he spent, he reckoned he'd, spent, he'd swum 600 miles in the channel without actually getting to the other side over his career. So he knew a lot about swimming in the channel. Didn't know a lot about what to do when he got to the other side, but he, <laughs> he, he let the swimmers get on with that. And he he coached the, the first woman to swim the channel was a uh, an American a teenager called I'm not sure how to pronounce it I've never seen it written down Ederly Trudy Ederly I think it is E-D-E-R-L-E um, and he coached her in 1925 and they didn't really get on he said um, she seemed more interested in playing her ukulele than training um, and she made her attempt in 1925 um, he was worried that she was really exhausted and was going to drown so he pulled her out um, and then she went back to America and complained that he'd pulled her out too early. She came back the following year and was trained by Tom Burgess, who was the second man to swim the channel. And then she succeeded and became the first woman to, to swim the channel. But he coached a load of um, successful channel swimmers. But he had kind of unorthodox methods and unorthodox theories of what made a good woman channel swimmer. He said, he said London girls were no good because they're too, uh, you know, you can't get them to, to go to bed before 9.30 and you can't get them to, to, to drink all the bottles of stout you need because they're, they're worried about their figure. These London girls, no good for swimming the channel. Uh, he also said brunettes were too flaky. <laughs> too flaky. Uh, yeah, they would never swim the channel. A, a, a brunette woman couldn't swim the channel. His ideal swimmer for swimming the channel was a blonde because they had more focus, he reckoned. Uh, but he did, you know, for all that kind of nonsense, he was a very successful channel swimming coach and and again one of the the great characters of, of the channel as far as i'm concerned and I, I keep a i've got a signed postcard of him over over my desk so i keep him and jean bart on my desk as well so, so. that's good do you start the day with five bottles of stout wonderful i'd like to like to know much more about him um and finally a, a guy called matthew webb well what did he get up to yeah as i say he was the the first um successful channel swimmer in 1875 and he was kind of the opposite of 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 Jabez Wolf actually in almost every sense he was a merchant seaman uh and in 1873 
2003, he made the headlines and got lots of medals because he was on a, a, a liner called the Russia in the Atlantic and a sailor got swept overboard and uh, Matthew Webb dived in to try and save him. It was unsuccessful, unfortunately. He didn't save the sailor, but he was in the Atlantic for about 40 minutes and the, the sea was about 13 degrees at that stage. It was uh, you know, really cold. I mean, he shouldn't have really survived. And he was pulled out and rescued and came back to great acclaim. And he developed this obsession with becoming the first person to swim the channel, which he, he did in 1875. And um, like I say, it was 1911 before anyone else did it successfully. So he was way ahead of his time. And unlike today, he did it breaststroke. I mean, no one does the swim, swims the channel breaststroke now. Uh, and it, and because he heads up with the breaststroke, he, he, had, he had these terrible sores on the back of his neck where the salt had rubbed his neck. I mean, he was in the water for something like 22 hours um, when he swam the channel. And, and he, he couldn't put a shirt on for two weeks because these sores on the back of his neck. Um, but his his post-channel swim life was was kind of really tragic, really, because you, how do you follow being the first man to swim the channel? Um, he tried to do the lecture circuit, but some of the politer reviews said he's not a natural orator. Uh, he didn't really want to go back to Captain in Tramp Steamers to China for a living. Um, he was determined to kind of make the most of this incredible achievement. Um, but his mental health started declining as well. And he, he ended up taking on these really kind of tawdry challenges, like swimming in a big tank of water in a theatre in Westminster for a week and stuff like this. And people would sort of wander in. And the thing is, endurance swimming isn't really a showbiz thing. You know, it, no. It's not even like he, he wasn't a trick diver. He wasn't a trick swimmer. It, it, he just did breaststroke for long periods of time. And that's not really a crowd puller. And there was a, a terrible one in the end um, in 1881, I think it was. He ended up doing this challenge to against a dentist in a lake in Lancashire and nobody turned up and he nearly exhausted himself um, and, and nearly nearly died in that. And it was, it was a terrible decline from this, this glory of swimming the channel in the space of six years to becoming this, you know, this, this poor fella just swimming up and down a, a sort of gungy lake in lancashire against the dentist it's so, true but he was quite he, he was quite innovative i reckon he would have rocked in the uh, youtube age because he'd have just <laughs> kind of come up with all of these wonderful wonderful things to um, and probably do quite dangerous and quite stupid i i'd quite I'd, I'd watch a little youtube video of him swinging swimming against a dentist in a gungy <laughs> lake that'd be funny <laughs> but he probably fit in with those kind of slow tv things that bbc4 do you know where you, you follow a sleigh in Norway for three hours, or a, or a, or a barge up the Ken- Naval Canal, Naval Canal. You, you, you just watch Matthew Webb doing his breaststroke back and forward in a tank of water. But, but he came to yeah. a, a tragic end. Unfortunately, he tried to swim the rapids uh, at Niagara Falls in 1883 um, for money because he, he said, oh, "I need the money, I need the money." And unfortunately, he was sucked into a whirlpool and and, and disappeared and washed up dead about two days later. And it, it was, I, I just think the contrast between him and Jabo's Wolf that Matthew Webb swam the channel was the first to do it um became this huge celebrity and had this terrible decline and tragic end whereas Jabez wolf never swam the channel and became this massive successful celebrity through uh through his kind of failure to pull it off but but yeah two contrasting characters but again there's something about the channel that attracts this kind of person um well, thanks so much for all of those wonderful stories, Charlie. And um, everyone listening, I would urge you to uh, go and get his book. It's just called The English Channel by Charlie Connolly. And it's very, very good indeed. But you also do your own podcast, don't you? I do, yeah. I do a little maritime podcast called Coastal Stories, um, where I just tell little 
small nuggets of stories from around the coast of Britain and Ireland. They're only about, none of them are more than 15 minutes long. Uh, and I go down to the, the beach at Deal here and I record the waves. So you don't just have to listen to me droning on. There's the sound of these lapping waves in the background of every episode too. So, so yeah, coastal stories, uh, 15 minutes long, all little self-contained stories. Um, and uh, wherever you get your podcasts. The second Yay. best uh, maritime podcast. <laughs> oh, thank you, I would, thank you I very much. That's very, that's very <laughs> kind of you. Um, and uh, we're definitely going to get you back on to talk about the shipping forecast, which is what you're very well known uh, for as mm. well. So um, looking forward to having you back on the podcast. Charlie, thank you so much for talking to me today. Brilliant. Thanks, Sam. I very much hope you enjoyed that discussion. Now, a few updates from the Society for Nautical Research. First of all, our free forum. It's great fun and absolutely free. Do please find it on snr.org.uk. There's a huge amount of interesting material there to discover. Most recently with posts on the rigging of historic ships, the pay of crew under Edward I, merchant ships sailing from Hong Kong to England in the 1980s, and timber mast ponds, which are much more interesting than you might suspect. On the site snr.org.uk, you can also find the archives of the Mariner's Mirror Journal, which has been published since 1911. There's a serious amount of material there to get stuck into should you have the time. Otherwise, do please follow us on social media at Nautical History on Twitter. The Mariner's Mirror Pod has its own Instagram and YouTube, and the Society for Nautical Research is itself on Facebook. Finally, do please leave us a review on iTunes. It can make an enormous difference. But the best thing of all, of course, is for you to join the Society for Nautical Research and your annual subscription will go towards publishing the most important maritime history and towards preserving our maritime past. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.